Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37. First book of the Bible, chapter 37. If you're visiting with us today, we've been doing a series of messages on people of the Bible. And we haven't got out of Genesis yet. So uh, we're coming today to talk about the life of Joseph. He takes up a lot of real estate in the Old Testament. His story starts in Genesis chapter 37 and it goes throughout the end of the book through chapter 50. And so we're going to be studying his story where he begins with a dream but then experiences just a lot of disappointment in life. Do any of you remember back in the 90s particular, particularly a series of children's books called Choose Your Own Adventure Books? Okay? Choose Your Own Adventure Books. These were really popular back then. In fact, they sold like some 250 million copies and they have went through some, well, the original company sold out to another company and so on and so forth. And I think you can still get these today or something similar to them, but you read the book and it comes to a point, to a, to a crossroads in the book, and you get to choose what happens next as the reader. And so you can turn to page 73 and the plot will go one direction, or you can turn to page 98 and the plot will go another direction, and, and you get to determine the course of the hero or the course of the main character. You get to determine the ending, and so the reader gets to choose their own adventure. 250 million copies, it was a pretty popular series for children. But there's a reason why it was a children's series, right? Because as adults, we know that's not the way life works. We don't get to choose our own adventure oftentimes. I mean, the concept is appealing that we can somehow determine our own destiny, we can choose our own circumstances, we can avoid adversity, we can stay away from disappointment. And as kids, we might believe that, that really it's all in my hands and I'm in control, I can be whatever I want to be, and life can go whatever direction I want it to go. But as adults, in large part, that's just not how it works. Life is not necessarily a choose-your-own-adventure book. Or could I put it this way? All of us start off thinking that our life is going to go a certain way and our story will be written a certain way, but it never quite goes just like we planned, does it? All of us start off with certain dreams, but reality has a way of waking us up. And I think that's what we see here as we study Joseph's life. Joseph was the son of Jacob who was also known as Israel. He was the grandson of Isaac and therefore the great-grandson of Abraham. And so in Genesis 37, we begin the story. He's a teenager. He's growing up in a pretty dysfunctional home. His mom died when he was young after his younger brother was born. But it's a dysfunctional home, and I think that's a pretty big understatement, really, because here's what we find. He's his father's favorite son. He's got ten older brothers. 
but his father Jacob loves him the most. So he gives Joseph this ornate coat that we all know is what? The coat of many colors, sure. But that's not just any coat, because by giving him this coat, he's saying to the other brothers, yeah, this boy's my favorite. This son is my favorite son. I love him the most. He's saying to the other brothers, you know, this son is going to be the main inheritor of my estate. This son, because he's wearing this coat, he's not going to be doing a lot of work out in the fields. He's not going to be doing all the manual labor. That's up to you guys. And so his father gives him the coat. I mean, try to imagine on Christmas morning that you've got 11 sons and you give 10 of them socks and underwear, and the other one the biggest, most elaborate Lionel train set you can imagine. Okay? Uh, it's going to be problematic in the relationship, right? And so that's what happens here. And here's what we read in Genesis 37, verse 4. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. They hated him. And could not speak a kind word to him. And maybe some of you know how quickly that you don't get to choose your own adventure because maybe you grew up in a dysfunctional home and you didn't get to choose your own family. And instead of a house filled with love, maybe you grew up in a house filled with hate. And like Joseph, maybe you grew up in a home where no one seemed capable of speaking a kind word. It was full of criticism, full of negativism, full of harsh tones. It, it was just this dysfunctional family. I mean, he's got three stepmoms living under one roof. Sounds like a bad reality TV show, right? Three stepmoms, one house. That's where he's growing up. And homes like this have a way of crushing dreams. But Joseph really doesn't help matters either. Because here's what happens. He has this dream as a teenager of his brothers all bowing down to him. Remember? His sheaf of grain stood up and all the other sheaves bowed down. And if you're taking notes, if you're a younger sibling, you might want to write this down. That if you have a dream where all of your other siblings bow down to you, keep it to yourself. Okay, I mean, you don't need to be sharing that out loud at the breakfast table over Cheerios, okay? I just, but Joseph, he has this dream. He's like, guess what, guys? Guess what I dreamed about last night? He tells him, and then his brothers grow to hate him even more. One day, Jacob, the father, sends Joseph out into the fields where the other brothers are all working. They're sweating, they're tired, they're hungry. And here comes Joseph strolling out in his coat and... They see him coming. And here's what they say to each other. Look at verse 19. Here comes that dreamer. Come now, let's kill him. And throw him into one of these cisterns and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Let's, let's just kill him. Well, one of the older brothers, Judah, who's one of Leah's boys, speaks up at verse 26. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. So let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And that way we'll at least get some money out of him. And that's what they do. They sell him into slavery. 
And at age 17, he's taken to this foreign land of Egypt. He's sold as a slave to one of Pharaoh's officials, a man named Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. The brothers cover up what they've done by killing a goat and taking that coat and dipping it in the goat's blood, and then they show it to their father, and when Jacob sees it, he just assumes his son has been killed, and he is grieved, it breaks his heart. But Joseph, all the while he's back in Egypt, serving as a slave for Potiphar. But Potiphar sees something in Joseph. This young man has some rare leadership gifts. He's He's got some administration and management capabilities. And so it doesn't take long for Potiphar just to, to just put Joseph in charge of his entire household, his whole business. He just turns the keys over to Joseph in that respect. And the Bible says that Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything because Joseph was in charge. So even though he's a slave away from home, he's kind of worked himself up a little bit as much as a slave can. But then the story takes quite a turn. Here's what we read that Potiphar's wife, who would have likely been a very beautiful Egyptian woman, probably a trophy wife of sorts because of Potiphar's position in Pharaoh's cabinet, she just becomes infatuated with Joseph. Now, the Bible tells us Joseph was handsome and he was well built. So she makes him her pursuit. And really, if you understood the Hebrew language, it, the language kind of gets quite graphic here. She says to him, come to bed with me. Hebrew is a little more crass than that, you might say. But here's how Joseph responds to her in verse 9. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And the Bible says, so she spoke to Joseph day after day. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He wouldn't even be with her. So here's what we see for Joseph as we look at his story. It's a lot of disappointment. Had a lot of dreams. Now he's a slave. Lots of disappointment. But in the midst of the disappointment, he remains faithful. He refuses to commit this sin against God. But you know, a lot of times, I think disappointment makes us think that we can justify disobedience. What do I mean by that? Some people think, well, since, since my life isn't going the way that I think it should, and since God hasn't held up his end of things over here, then I'm just going to go over here and do this. And disappointment ends up justifying our disobedience, so we think. And I think this is particularly true when it comes to sexual sin. Maybe someone that is single thinks that they would have been married at this point, been raised in a family, but, but they, they're kind of blaming God for not bringing that special someone into their life. And so they say, well, God, since you haven't done that, then I'm just, I've got to have my needs fulfilled and they're disobedient. Their disobedience is justified by their disappointment. Doesn't work that way, folks. You cannot justify disobedience just because you're disappointed. And, and I think 
that's just the way some people are. They think, okay, God, if you're not going to come through for me in this area of my life, that means it's okay for me to do what I want to do and not do things your way. Well, Joseph's story was not going how he thought it should go. The plot is not unfolding how he imagined, but he's still faithful to God in the midst of his disappointment. And he says to Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? Well, how could God do such a thing to Joseph? I mean, he had these dreams, but he's sold into slavery by his brothers. His dad thinks he's dead. He's serving as a slave with no rights. He'll never be married in that environment. And yet, Joseph is faithful in the midst of his disappointment. But then, things get worse. Because one day, Pharaoh's wife takes things to another level. And once again, she says to him, come to bed with me. And this time she grabs him by the arm. He's wearing some sort of a cloak. He slips out of it and he runs away. She's left there with his coat. And she cries out, rape, rape. Well, that's not the biblical word here, but that's basically the accusation, all right? So the security comes in. She has the coat, the circumstantial evidence, and Potiphar has Joseph thrown into prison. By the way, with Potiphar being the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard, that probably means that he was Pharaoh's chief executioner as well. And if he really, truly thought that Joseph had went in to make sport of or rape his wife, don't you think he would have had Joseph put to death? But he doesn't. Throws him into a prison, probably a dungeon. And it makes some scholars speculate whether or not he trusted Joseph actually more than he trusted his wife. Who's to say? But Joseph is thrown into prison, into a dungeon probably, a hole where he's chained, at least initially. He's done nothing to deserve it. But as you study the Bible, you see a lot of examples of people that make decisions that lead to disappointment. It was so with Adam and Eve after they ate of the forbidden fruit. It was so with Abraham and Sarah when they bring Hagar into their marriage. Their own decisions bring about a lot of heartbreak and a lot of disappointment. But that's not always the case. And it, Joseph here, Joseph has done nothing to deserve this. It wasn't his sin. It wasn't his disobedience. It wasn't his rebellion. It wasn't his unfaithfulness. But isn't there a lot of disappointment in his life? It's not his fault. It was just life. He was a victim of somebody else's decisions and choices. He started off with a dream, then he becomes a slave. What's worse than being a slave? Well, being a prisoner, and that's what happened. And so here's, here's a question as we reach this point in Joseph's life. Where's God at? Where's God in the midst of such disappointment? Thirteen years here. Where's God in the midst of his life? And maybe some of you are, you're in a chapter of your life and that's the question you're asking. Where's God in the midst of my disappointment? 
Maybe a person's on their last round of chemo and the doctor has said, there's nothing more we can do. Where's God in the midst of that? Or to the single mom whose husband has left her for another woman and she's pregnant with their first child. Where's God in the midst of that? Or to that teenager who's grown up being physically and sexually abused at home. Where's God in the midst of that? Or to a mom who is single and trying to take care of a 16-year-old daughter who will never walk again as a paraplegic because a drunk driver hit her. Where's God in the midst of that? Where's God in the midst of the disappointment and in the midst of the devastation? Where's God when you're in the dungeon? If you look at chapter 39, here's what you find. A couple of reminders that were given in chapter 39, verse 2. This is when Joseph is a slave. And here's what we read very simply. The Lord was with Joseph. If you look down towards the end of the chapter, verse 23 of that same chapter, Joseph's in prison now. And this time, what does it say? Well, exactly the same thing as when he was a slave. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. It didn't seem like it. Joseph may not even have known it, but the Lord was there. And so the warden puts him in control of the rest of the prisoners because he sees in Joseph evidently what Potiphar saw. Two prisoners particularly that are put under Joseph's care. One is the chief cupbearer to Pharaoh. It was his job to taste the wine before Pharaoh took it to make sure it wasn't poisoned so that if he fell over dead, Pharaoh would say, I, I don't think I want any of that, okay? So the chief cupbearer and then the chief baker. Well, they both have dreams, real explicit dreams while they're there in prison. More than dreams, they mean something and they, they know that. And they start sharing these dreams. Well, God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dreams. And he shares that interpretation with them. And the cupbearer is restored to his place of duty with Pharaoh, but the baker is executed. You read the story, you think, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, Joseph told the cupbearer to remember him, but he doesn't. And another two years pass by. He's now the cupbearer for Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. Pharaoh wakes up one morning, having had a dream of his own. He knows it means something. He calls in his wise men and counselors. They can't interpret the dream. And then the cupbearer suddenly remembers Joseph and says to Pharaoh, you know, when you had thrown me into prison, I had a dream. And there was a young Hebrew boy there. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Joseph. Joseph was his name. And somehow he just knew. And he interpreted my dream and it came true and you restored me to service. But you, you executed the, the chief baker just like just like that young man said. So Pharaoh calls Joseph in, and he tells Joseph, here's the most powerful man in the world, telling this prisoner, this slave, his dream. And the Bible tells us God gave Joseph the interpretation for the dream. And Pharaoh knows it's from God. And here's what we read in chapter 41, verse 38. Here's what Pharaoh says to his counselors. Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So in essence, what? Joseph, you're now the second most powerful man in the world. Just like that. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He was a prisoner. He was a slave. Now he's deputy Pharaoh. The vice president of Egypt. Second most powerful man in the world. How does that happen? Because the Lord was with Joseph. Because God is writing his life story. We've seen it before, right? God wants to populate a nation, so what does he do? He says, let's get this elderly, infertile couple over here, Abraham and Sarah. And he does. But now the time has come for God to rescue his people because there's a famine coming. He needs one of his people in a position of power and authority. Who does he choose? The former slave, the ex-convict, Joseph at 30 years of age. And you look at the story, I don't know of a faster way for him to have become deputy Pharaoh than to have spent time as a slave and time as a prisoner. And you just see this once again, that when God is writing the story, he chooses an unlikely cast of characters. So God uses Joseph to execute this plan that saves millions of people from this severe famine, a seven-year famine that doesn't just affect all of Egypt, it affects most of the, 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 the Middle Eastern world at that time. It spreads out to Canaan, back home where Joseph's family is at. It, they, they've got money, they've got resources, but there's no food. There's no grain to buy. So what happens? Joseph's father Jacob, he sends out Joseph's older brothers to the land of Egypt to try to get grain because they've heard that Egypt had stockpile, stockpile grain and food for this famine. So here come the brothers to Egypt. 22 years have passed since they sold Joseph into slavery. Joseph was 17 then. He's 39 now. And they don't recognize him. And what happens? His brothers find themselves in front of the deputy Pharaoh and what do they do? They bow down. They bow down. And Joseph, he ends up putting them through a few tests to make sure they've changed and see if they're sorry for what they've done. He sees that they're now compassionate towards his father. And I know I'm skipping a lot of the details of the story, but you get to chapter 45, the first five verses. It says, then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So what's he saying? 
Yeah, God's in control. It's all part of God's plan. Don't be angry with yourselves for what you've done because God has used this. And in chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis, verse 20, Joseph says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You meant this for evil, God used it for good. And the brothers didn't know that, know that at the time, and Joseph didn't know that in person in, in, when he was in prison or as a slave, and God certainly didn't cause the brothers to sin by selling Joseph into slavery and lying to their father. God didn't cause Potiphar's wife to sin by lusting after Joseph and then lying about an attack. But here's what God does, folks. He, he takes all of those decisions all of those broken pieces, all of that sin, all of that mess, all of that disappointment, and God says, I can work with this. I can make something of this. And he takes all of those pieces and he accomplishes his purpose. And it's for Joseph's good and for God's glory. He redeems. He redeems. And this is the ultimate view of God's sovereignty. We talked about God being our redeemer in the call to worship that her blood is in. And it's not to say God causes all things. He doesn't. But he causes all things to work together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And he can take anything. He can take any piece and he can use that for the good in telling the story. And Joseph says, God has redeemed this. And here's what I, I would want to say to you. Never give up on God redeeming your life. On God redeeming your circumstances. On God redeeming your disappointment. Never give up. He's a great redeemer. This is who he is. This is what he does. I, I, it's one of my favorite things about God that he can redeem anything. He can fix anything. It's never too broken. It's never too busted. It's never too late. He, he can fix it. He takes all the broken pieces and turns it into something beautiful. It's what the Bible tells us. That all of these broken pieces are ultimately leading to the great redeemer. Jesus, who redeemed the world from its sin. You know, Joseph spent a long time as a slave and in prison, but God hadn't left him. God was at work all the time, even when Joseph couldn't see it. But now he can see it. He sees it now, and he's not angry with his brothers. You know, it's easier, I think, in hindsight to see how God has worked and how he's put the pieces together. And I think in eternity someday we'll probably discover that there are all kinds of insignificant things that God used to shape our life. Because the Bible says, as you see on the screen, Romans 8, 28, in all things God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. In all things. In good things, in bad things. All things. In big things and in little things. In all things. He's in all things. In exciting things and in disappointing things. In all things. He works for the good of those that love him. That's a promise from God. We don't get to choose our own adventure, do we? 
but we get to choose how we'll respond when disappointment comes. And if I were to read your story, look at your life, how would it tell of you dealing with a chapter in your life that is titled disappointment? Or that's entitled devastation? Or a chapter that's entitled unemployed? Or divorced? Or terminal? Disappointments will come, and our tendency is to become bitter and withdrawn, become harsh and become hard, but in the midst of the disappointment, God is still there. And when we love Him, and when we're called according to His purpose, we can know that He's working things for the good. So how will you respond? All of us start off thinking our story is going to be written a certain way. This never quite goes how we planned We don't know what challenges we're going to face. We don't know what hurt we'll have to handle. We don't know what suffering is going to come our way. What do we know? We know that God's in control. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And so right now, the word might be disappointment. But who gets the last word? God does. God does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you do get the last word. And that even though we go through trials and tribulations in this life, you have forewarned us of that. Your son himself said, in this world you'll have tribulation. But to be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. So help us always to remember that you're on your throne, you're in control in the deepest, darkest, most devastating and disappointing circumstances that we could ever face in our life. You can still work for our good. Help us to remember that, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.